During the High Holy Days, the sounding of the shofar wakes us up and calls us to act on behalf of all those facing food insecurity. Mazon, a Jewish response to hunger, is the national Jewish organization dedicated to tikkun olam, helping repair the world. And they do this by fighting hunger among people of all faiths and backgrounds in the United States and Israel. Right now, your donation will be doubled, up to $100,000. Please visit mazon.org unorthodox to join our fight to end hunger. Now I can't hear anyone. <clears throat> oh, hello, hello. no, no one was talking, guys. I just got really <laughs> quiet. I just assumed something was wrong with my system, my setup. Okay. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I am back with my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Six foot five, 240 pound, Leah Leibovitz, to be exact. And tablet podcaster at large, Joshua Molina. 5'3", 47 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> guys, this is a timely newsy podcast. With the, look at those. With those. How about us? Those Trump jokes. Uh, <laughs> today, on our third week of the month of Elul, our special little mini-series devoted to the month leading up to the high holidays, we are digging in. First, we have an interview with Jewish food personality Jake Cohen, who tells us about his newest cookbook, I Could Nosh, classic Jewish recipes revamped for every day. We're also bringing you a profile of the unexpected baker behind some of the best rugelach in New York City. I'm, I'm going to give it my, my hechsher. It's the best fucking rugelach in the city. It's amazing. Wow. It's my favorite. We're also heading back to Plant Burger, that place we mentioned a few episodes back. Tablet writer Maggie Phillips sat down with co-founders Seth Goldman and Julie Farkas to talk about this amazing restaurant that serves kosher and halal certified plant-based burgers. We are here for your plant-based meat needs. Um, we're this, serving this is, you. This is the chain that will bring peace to this world. The Sikh, the Hindu, the halal, the kosher. We will all come together over- the Friday night Catholic. It's perfect. Really freaking delicious. Yeah, Meatless Monday. Whoever you are, we got you. The it's vegan. amazing. It's a great change. And finally, after all of that, after that that, that that well-balanced meal, we are topping it off with a dessert, the latest installment of our series Across the USA, in which we check out Jewish life across the country, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. On this segment, our producer, Josh Cross, travels to the Catskills to get a taste of the area's thriving Orthodox community. And that might sound like he eats the members of the Orthodox community, but he does not. No one was harmed in the making. He just has a lot of delicious kosher food. We have a lot going on. It's a very, it's a jam-packed, it's a meaty. Many courses. We have lots of courses. There are, there are lots of patties in the burger of this episode. Um, I think I'm out of metaphors, but let's keep it short because I, we want to get to the meal. So let's do a little, a little amuse-bouche. Can we talk a little bit about food and, and sort of the role it plays? Like, you know, we're using one of our four weeks of Elul to talk about food. So it must be pretty important to the Jewish experience. So I'd love to hear from both of you, actually, about like where food figures for you, Jewishly. A saucisson, if you will, of, <laughs> of, of Jewish food spirituality. Look, you know, this is really interesting because here we are. It's late August as we record this. And we have spent the last month celebrating Lily's bat mitzvah in Israel, which was amazing. And after that, as promised, took her on her bat mitzvah trip, which included a stop in London. Now, I'm not ashamed to say that we congregated in the Duke's Hotel in London in a kind of charming little corner, which is the small and luxurious hotel where Ian Fleming conceived reportedly of the character of James Bond. 
And it is the one bar in London that serves what I will certify in my role as, you know, supreme rabbinic authority to all matters alcoholic as the greatest fucking martini on the face of planet Earth. And as I was ordering this beverage and watching it sort of carted out in a literal cart to me with like a whole host of bottles that included a whole host of questions from this Italian maitre d' who then proceeded to ceremoniously pour this perfectly into my glass and really kind of make a whole production out of it. I understood just how important a role uh, food and drink plays in our life. I mean, you could denigrate this or sort of dismiss this that is deeply trivial, uh, but um, there was really nothing more from, nothing more kind of like profoundly Orthodox Jewish than this kind of like very <laughs> adherently ceremonious thing. It's like, oh no, you mustn't use this alcohol. Only this alcohol. You must stare at this many times, not this many times. This is the correct garnish, not this garnish. Like it actually strikes me that we don't have a better way of understanding our connection to tradition and to spirituality and, and to the world above us than, than really kind of digging in to this glass that we have in our quest for alcoholic perfection and saying, yes, gin, not vodka, stirred, not shaken, olive, not twist, shaken 39 times, very cold, serve it to us. Because otherwise, you know, how, how would we even make sense of our deep desire to engage with, with higher realms? It was a truly transformational moment. Joshua Molina, do, do you get me? Do you understand this obsession of mine? I think I understand in the sense that I also suffer from mild OCD. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's resonating with me in that sense. Was the finished product, had you not been witness to the ritualization of the creation of the a cocktail, would you have tasted any difference? You know what? Ooh, good question. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> I'm going to go with it wouldn't have mattered because like, the magic would not have been present. There wouldn't have been this kind of great tension of watching a priestly benediction you know, prepared in this card and carded upon me. And like, as it happened, I'm not joking. Like my thoughts wandered to the Israelites in the temple of old, watching the priest in his garments because the Italian bartender was like meticulously freaking dressed with a freaking leather apron. Like it was the whole thing was so perfect. And I felt like without this, where's the magic? Like, where's the moment in which you have this kind of expectation of something transformational? If it doesn't happen, if you can't do the theater, then what is it that you have with, with food and drink? I was just yeah. thinking, it's a piece of theater. It's performance it's a piece art. Of, of course. That certainly resonates with me. But yeah, it's sure. wonderful. I am just so amazed because I think this is the, the top entry of all time in Liel Makes Things Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a diverse and varied canon. No, but honestly, like this is when when, when I watched you know Downton Abbey, I thought to myself like this is the most freaking from Jewish show ever made because like here are people like oh no you can't use this fork it's actually that fork no 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 this is not the kind of dress that you wear on this dinner it's that dress like this is how Orthodox Jews live like this is our life this is our way these people it's stay over reason. there these people stay down here it's like a pizza in the middle of the house and, and from Jews are the only people left in this great 
<laughs> world who really actually stand in ceremony. And I freaking love standing in ceremony. That is like unexpectedly an amazing Elul take. You've, you've brought it back. You've stuck the landing and I'm, I'm here for it. I'm actually feeling slightly bad as we talk about all this because I've had a couple of meals recently with my folks. And much like when I was a child, my mother is aghast at how quickly I eat. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm feeling like I'm I'm failing to honor the holy act of eating. I have a friend. I, I can remember as a child my mother saying, "No one's going to take it away. <laughs> you don't have to eat quickly. <laughs> you have as much time as you want." And I think maybe that's maybe that's what's with, with what's left of the days before the high holy days. Uh, maybe I should try eating more slowly and and, and savoring and embracing. <laughs> The, the divine. Oh, there's something so, I think, profoundly Jewish by just scarfing it down. Like, they're going to take it away from us anyway. My friend Ajay has told any number of people in front of me, and it's always humiliating, that there's nothing more disgusting than observing me eating a bagel. I'll have to perform oh. it for you sometime. It's also, I mean, I think it could also be taken as a piece of theater. I get that. I mean, I also <laughs> just think that, like, it's probably a schmear situation. Like, I do not like a lot of schmear for exactly that reason. I don't want anyone to have to see me. I also do, like, a lot of wiping of the bagel. It's it, no one. It's a private activity. Well, it's sacred. It's holy. Yeah. See, I, I have an excuse because I could say, so, so the Israeli army has a very particular thing. There's something called, you know, the, the sort of six assigned minutes, which is you actually during basic training are trained to finish your meal in six minutes or less. So whenever you eat like a pig moving on in life, you can say like, well, it's not my fault. I learned it in the army. It's how uh, we were trained. But I think there's actually something kind of endearing about it. It's like, yeah, that's the time you have when when reality is pressing down upon you and, you know, the oppressors are just at the doorstep. I support that. I can't tell if it's actually my life or something I've just like made in like one of those imagined memories. But like, I did feel like growing up, you like, you kind of had to finish your food because someone else might eat it off your, like at the table with you. And so you were always just like, you couldn't, you never save the best for last because like that big sister might just come with a spoon and grab it. And I feel like- Or the Gestapo. Someone, yes, yeah, someone. <laughs> but I think that maybe the greatest victory we can have is to slow down and eat and to enjoy what, what we eat and to think about what we eat. And I actually think that's like an amazing theme for this episode, which is basically just thinking about the food, the, how food is made, who is making it for us, and thinking about what it means to us and how we sort of create Jewish lives and community around food. Hallelujah. Jay Cohen is a chef, food writer, and self-proclaimed nice Jewish boy. And today he's returning to the show to tell us all about his new cookbook, I Could Nosh, classic Jewish recipes revamped for every day. He shares some pointers for our Rosh Hashanah tables, and you don't want to miss it. Jay Cohen, welcome back to Unorthodox. Hi, happy to be here. Your first cookbook, Jewish, was like a smashing success. That's always the goal. Be good for the Jews. <laughs> that is the goal. And and you write that basically like the more you dig into your own Jewish identity, mm -hmm. the more food comes to the forefront. So tell us a little bit about your Jewish journey almost and then yeah. how that leads in many ways to this amazing book, I Could Nash. So 
It starts with the first book, which really was kind of a result of my husband and I bringing the ritual of Shabbat into our lives, which was not actually something that either of us really grew up with. And we fell in love with it. And really this idea of Jewish food as a medium for ritual is so important. Food as a medium for connection, food as a medium for community, food as a medium for self-care and recharging. Like these are all the ways that food becomes like the cornerstone of every Jewish ritual. And that's what I find is so magical. So past that, like when I was coming into this book, this book, I always say it's like it is a love letter to the women in our families because it is about reclaiming grandma hospitality, which is this idea of like everyday hospitality where someone's coming over, turning your kitchen into your center of gathering. How can you always be ready to feed someone you love in a way that I think we have strayed away from? Tell us more about grandma hospitality, this idea of I could nosh. Like, where does that come from? One of the things that I live my life by is like a constant stream of little bites and snacks and noshes. But how that actually looks in practice is very varied. So I wanted to create a book that was about like, how do I empower people to always want to cook for themselves, for their families, for their friends, in a way that was kind of formatted so that you wouldn't be so stressed. Because I think everyone takes themselves too seriously and they get so stressed out, whether it's like hosting the holidays or even just like having someone come by for coffee in the afternoon. So when I think of grandma hospitality, it's like soup, salad, sandwiches. The entrees are either recipes that are like start to finish in under an hour or project recipes that you should do on the weekends and then like keep in your fridge and freezer to always be ready to heat something up, which is literally what my mother-in-law does. She's always like, oh, so just going to be little bites. I'm like, no, no, no. You cook like pounds and pounds of stews and rices and just like freeze it for whenever we're hungry. And then like the desserts are just snacking cakes and cookies because those are the sweets that you should just have on your counter for someone stopping by. I love that. And you talk about sort of the, the question, are you hungry? Which is a, a question we Jews know well. When yeah. you get to someone's house or you get home, someone says, are you hungry? And you say... It's posed in a tone equally loving, worrisome, and aggressive. <laughs> yes, yes. I think that it's such an extension of love in a way of like, you care about someone and you just need to make sure that they're fed. And that's like my love language. I, I can be aggressive when someone like doesn't, when someone doesn't like turns down food when I offer them, like it's like a knife in the heart. <laughs> twisting. And is I could nosh? Like, that's the response, right? Are you of hungry? Of course. Doesn't matter if you are hungry or not. No matter what, I could nosh because anything else would be would be disrespectful. I don't want to just say it's a Jewish thing because I'm sure everyone does this, but this yeah. idea of like, when is our next meal? Like, I was just on vacation with my in-laws. It was, we'd be sitting at a meal discussing our next meal. Always. That is, <laughs> that's literally every day of my life. And this is a way to really kind of like embrace that. I think too often everyone's like trying to shy away from the crazy nuances that we've inherited from a very specific cultural impact of being raised by Jewish women. And I just kind of want to lean into it to a degree that's like almost camp. <laughs> that definitely resonates with me. I've been uh, had a couple meals recently with my folks and I commented on the fact that during the meal, we talk about how great the food is. Of course. <laughs> then we transition into, do you think there's enough left for lunch tomorrow? Or should we just <laughs> eat more now? And then the third thing is, what will the next meal be? Completely. Let's let's talk about leftovers because you in the book, you say they're, you call them a blessing, right? A blessing. For example, I was actually just getting into this with another Jewish food creator and she has she's working on her book and it was this whole conversation about pasta. She wanted to do her pasta recipes for two servings. 
And I was like, no, no, no. I always am doing two servings, but I make a pound of pasta because I want leftovers. I want to eat pasta then the next day for lunch. Or like, I always do everything in big batches. And when people are like, oh, I mean, the number one question I get from every Jewish woman who's ever bought my book, who's ever made one of my recipes, the number one question without fail, you're probably thinking about it already, is can I freeze it? Which is like, my mother has frozen her freezer is a time capsule of every <laughs> recipe I've ever made and given her leftovers. Uh, 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 and so she sweet. like, but like it's not dated. So it's just like everything's frostbitten. <laughs> I just want her to throw it all out, but she won't because you never know when you're really craving like that thing I made last summer. But it is so true. So much of Jewish food is better the next day. Like that Completely. Rosh Hashanah brisket is so good the next day. Get it, having matzo ball soup in your fridge. That's our fourth conversation. Yes. This is better exactly. than it was yesterday. Exactly. exactly, exactly. And it's so good. And then you get to kind of like do your own thing with it. Someone makes the meal, but then you make your brisket leftover the 100%. way you, like, you, I don't know. And even cold, it tastes so good. So it's funny. I have like soup is life. Soup is my my favorite <laughs> thing ever. I'm going to do a lot of like Jewish name dropping. Please. Um, so Bring it. Uh, I had breakfast with Alex Elderman yesterday. And he, of course. He went I saw it this, on Instagram. Went to this vintage bookstop and he got me this like, vintage kosher soup cookbook. <laughs> and it was like the sweetest thing anyone ever got me. And it just reminded me that like I've created this new tradition because I have, I'm in this Fire Island house this summer with Modi, the comedian. And You're just husband. naming people who've been on our show. We it's love perfect. Modi. Literally <laughs> love Modi. Um, but the thing that comes up is like we always get all these chickens. So I'll break down the chickens, roast the chickens for Shabbat. By the way, it, being in, a, in any share house with you must be just incredible because like the food is just. It's not bad. It's not bad. I will say this last time, there just ended up being all these Jews on the island. So we ended up doing an oneg where we like blast invite any gay Jew on Fire Island in the Pines to come over. We had like 40 people for Oneg and I baked challah and we did Kiddush and then like... Beautiful. But I make chicken sock every time so then like at some point in the weekend I make soup. And it's like that's the day everyone looks forward to like I'll make a big pile of lentil soup but we have it fresh day one and then the conversation's always like the next day it's like oh it's so much better today and then like the third day it'll be like (laughs) wow it's even better because that's all we could talk about. I noticed there's a recipe for soupless chicken soup. That was a name that my my husband had had given to it. It's one of my favorite dishes. It's going to be a very popular Rosh Hashanah recipe I feel like. I'm going to give it a try. I'm excited. It's a very easy roast chicken with all of the flavors of chicken soup. So you're roasting it over a bed of carrots, celery, and parsnips with Parsnip. white wine and and thyme and garlic. And then you literally just like pop it in the oven. It comes together so quickly. Oh, um, and it's like simple. It's not, it, you finish it with like t- tons of chopped dill and parsley. It's no frills, but just like such a comforting roast chicken. I really like that you you mentioned lentil soup because you have, I think, the second most famous lentil stew in your book. We might be familiar with Jacob's lentil stew from the Bible. You have Jake's lentil stew. Exactly. So how do you take on a, such a classic, a birthright inducing, a birthright giving up? I don't know how you describe yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 uh, I get the, I get the, I think I make a, a little pun about the about that in the book. The thing is, it's like you're dealing with classics, and I'm constantly really on that fine line of tradition and wanting to honor tradition by offering just like the best version of a classic that we all know and love. And then there are times when I just like, all right, let's like 
flip it on its head. So like my mushroom barley, I like lean into spring and I actually use barley miso and I do it in like a super funky umami rich way. But for my lentil stew, I really wanted to keep it classic. But what I do that I really love is I make like a a sofrito. So it's like a combination of all of the vegetables that would be the base for the lentil soup. I chop them roughly and I put them under the broiler to char them a bit and then into the food processor to like get them into a fine kind of chop. And then you cook that down as the base of your lentil soup and it just gives it so much more flavor, a hint of smokiness. It's everything that you know and love with a little more oomph. That's like you. I mean, that's a perfect, yeah, I love that. So the high holidays are upon us. Your book's out next week. Rosh Hashanah's in a few weeks. We're all sort of like considering what it means to eat and to cook for the high holidays. And I think the main thing in a lot of people's mind is this idea of a a round challah. And it's like, why is this challah different? You've become known for your challah techniques, your challah videos, stuff like that. And so tell us about the tutorial part of this book and then also sort of give us some tips on our round challahs. So... It's funny because this is about every day, but yet holidays are so special that I wanted to make sure that we're like super present, even in our everyday cooking. That was kind of the fun part of like, we're like, oh, what do you do for people who pre-order? And if you pre-order the book, you go to a link and you can get all of my Rosh Hashanah recipes emailed to you. So oh, there are people who are already messaging me that they're already cooking from the book. And they're like, oh my God, I love uh, this. And I love that. And, <laughs> and that's like, that's what I want. That's why I do what I do. And so I lean in heavily to like A, Rosh Hashanah desserts, because I'm doing like all that. But with the round challahs, in my first book, I do a tutorial for a six-strand braid, which I love. I do it every week. But for this one, I offered a four-strand traditional challah braid with a step-by-step photos and a round four-strand challah. And it's really like easy. Everyone's like, everyone gets so freaked out, but really it's, it's simple steps that you just have to do in repetition And it takes some practice. I think people get so frustrated when they're like, they get so frustrated with cooking and baking in a way that they don't with other things. They don't go to a new country after doing Duolingo for two weeks and expect to speak (laughs) the language fluently. They don't go to the gym after doing their first like run and expect to like deadlift 250 pounds. Like people give themselves grace for everything but cooking where they expect that they should be overnight perfect. Kala is this living, breathing thing. I talk about it constantly where there are two things I have in the book in like big letters. It has to be tacky, not sticky, which means when you're making your dough, you have to add in enough flour so that the dough is properly smooth and it's tacky like a, like a putty, but it's not sticky where it's ripping off onto your fingers because if it's sticky, you need to keep on kneading more flour in. And then the second is you have to let it double in size. You have to let it rise until it's doubled. The amount of flour you're going to need every week is going to be different depending on the humidity, the temperature, all that stuff. The amount of time you're going to need for your dough to double and rise, it's going to change. It's different when I'm in Florida. It's different in the summer. (laughs) It's different. Like all of these things are huge factors and people are, they just are a little little stubborn. What if I don't have time or I have this or that? Challah waits for no one. Um, You wait, (laughs) you bend to the challah. Oh my God, I I have a third... (laughs) third name drop. Guess who's coming to stay with me for Rosh Hashanah this year, next week, but the Challah Prince. The Challah Prince. Challah Prince Amazing. is coming to stay wow. over with us wow. for a few days. How many attempts should it take a novice to start getting in? Because I've always been daunted. I've been intimidated by challah making, but I'd like to give it a shot. So I will say, and I like, I have a really good step-by-step photo tutorial. The number one thing is videos. Before TikTok, before Instagram Reels, there really was 
I think there was just like one video and it was like Jamie Geller's Hala tutorial on YouTube. <laughs> and I was like the only thing you had. And now you have hundreds of braiding tutorials online that you should just be watching and doing. And if you really love it and you're passionate about it, it's like I typically do bake-alongs all the time where I'll like, like, all right, great. We're going to go live. I'll go live on Instagram. Everyone have oh, your dough ready. And we'll do it. And the funny thing is whenever I do, I don't do them like often because I do them for charity whenever I'll do like a, a bake-along. And when it's on Zoom, then everyone's like, okay, great. I need you to look at my dough, bless my <laughs> dough, and then I can move on. They're like putting it towards They're the camera. It towards yeah. the camera. <laughs> Does this look good? <laughs> People are going to ask, what flour do you use? I mean, listen, they should cut me a check. I should have an affiliate link. I just love King Arthur bread flour. I think it's it's the best. I'm also a big believer. We live in America. We're not in Europe. We're not using metric, except everyone needs a scale for two things. One is just like weighing produce and stuff. Like you get a whole bunch of stuff. Like, uh, yeah, I'll call for everything is a different size. So like, all right, I call for one pound of carrots or X, Y, Z. The other thing you need a scale for is to measure your flour. You can use measuring cups for everything in a recipe for baking other than the flour. The flour needs to be measured. I use a 135-gram cup of flour, and that's final. Everyone who's always like, oh, I'm having issues. Do you have a scale? No. Buy it. Open your phone. You just used it to order my book on Amazon. It's like, order yourself a scale, too, while you're at it. So walk us through this this Rosh Hashanah menu. We have the soupless chicken soup. We got the apple and endive salad. Tell us sort of what you're making. Yeah, so the high holiday salad is my absolute favorite because it's so easy. It's like this endive and radicchio salad that gets topped with date syrup candied walnuts and this super easy dressing and it's just honey crisp apples in like a mixture of Dijon and honey and lemon juice and olive oil. So then you pretty much make this mixture, can leave it in advance, and then you spoon it over the endive and like finish it off with some blue cheese and parsley. I love blue cheese. If you don't love blue cheese, like, uh, what do I care? People change my recipes all the time. They act like I'm going to get, like, personally offended. It's like, I'm just glad you're cooking. Well, I want to say, I mean, that's such an elevated way to think about apples and honey. It's not just a trendy salad, right? You actually go back to these these core core principles of the holiday. But, you know, you mentioned people changing your recipes. I feel like we have to say, be like, this cookbook is not kosher. However, you do offer, I mean, there's... Bacon, egg, and cheese. Chalastrata. Yes. yes. I will say this is, I've been on this journey. That is the only recipe with traif, like, ex, like, uh, like really active just like traif. active traif. <laughs> and I don't know that they're, that it's the bullying I've gotten online or the fact that in mm. my daily life, I just, I don't cook that much traif other than the occasional bacon. I don't, and a chicken parm here and there. I don't do that much traif. I don't really like shellfish. So I don't cook shellfish all the time. And it's one of those things where I wanted this book to be good for everyone. So a huge part is I've been cutting dairy back in my diet. So the desserts, I have so many great parv desserts with the intention that like, oh, everyone could enjoy this. And I call out where like, all right, you could use butter or you could use oil or you could use vegan butter and you can like just do what works for you. I'm a big believer in like, do what works for you and leave everyone else alone in a way that people sometimes take my recipes and they make them so trafe heavy, like in a way that I couldn't have even imagined. And I'm like, good for you. Enjoy. I mean, I think that openness and that respect for everything is really like that's a hallmark of what you do. And I think that's sort of what we're trying to do, right? People are like, if you don't like blue cheese, leave it off the salad. Yeah. Also, if you don't want cheese on your salad because you're serving exactly. meat, like it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of a la carte in a really good way. But you refer to cutting out dairy as like a, 
a, a stomach sensitivity. Oh, like you 100%. play, like, and we've talked about this stereotype yeah. a little bit. So tell us about your your dairy. Journey. I always say because I actually I don't drink alcohol. I've never really drank. Um, I mean, I love drugs. I'm not like a, I'm not like one of those people. <laughs> but like, um, it, it's one of those things where I always say it's like juice. At any moment, you can pick alcohol, dairy, or spicy. At most, you could do one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 like one at a time, once a day. Okay. And I've just always chosen dairy or spicy, and I'll never choose alcohol. Wait, that's so funny. Wait, Josh, which one are you? Uh, yeah, I'm not great. I'm not big on dairy alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest, I don't like spicy. I don't love dairy. Though mine is like prime. This is disgusting. My sinuses. Like I've had a I've had a sinus journey and cutting out dairy. Has I need to get me. my septum fixed. Yeah, yeah. That's why everyone. It's like, I, I, got, don't, okay. I don't do any did any it. any drugs that has to get snorted. Not happening. Oh uh, well. So <laughs> I did. I got a, a sinus surgery actually in 2017, and I sound different if you listen to like very early episodes of the show. Oh. I sound more congested. But during it, I got my septum fixed, and it's like kind of bittersweet because I came out looking exactly the same. No, but and, that's actually it's very important because we my husband and I talk about this all the time because naturally if you're for a gay Jew growing up in America, we have a lot of the the same conversations on like, oh, do you get a nose job? And I, that's all I ever wanted as a kid. And now as an adult, it's I would I would never touch my nose. I and not only that, I think it's the hottest thing on a Jewish man. It's like a big <laughs> schnoz. Oh my god! Like in like like truly. Can I say that since we're doing a medical disclosure, I had my uh, septum fixed, and the doctor suggested that I would breathe better at night. Were I to laser my uvula? <laughs> And he told me there's the one slight thing that some Jews and Arabs have a problem with is it might affect your ability to make the sound. And I said, well, that I can't risk. That's fair. <laughs> you cannot That's abide. Valid. I've left my uvula intact. Thank God um, <laughs> you are an intactivist of a different, of a different sort. Right. I really like the way you play with tradition. Like you yeah. have this cacio e pepe matzo brai. Like you have these things that feel very classic. I know. I'm intrigued by that. I know. And I think that that might be what gets me to finally like matzo brai. Oh. Yeah. I, I will say the funniest thing that I think is going to be, I think it's going to be the hit of Rosh Hashanah this year. I have many, I always have like a feeling of like what recipes are going to pop off and like what mm-hmm. round. This first one, there are two. I have this uh, three. I have this easy <laughs> one bowl apples and honey snack and cake, which is like my last book. I had this like upside down apple and honey cake that was a little more involved and people loved it. But I wanted to do like, what's the easiest, like fastest way to get it? That's totally parf. Then I do this simis cake. So it's a play on simis. So it's carrot, sweet potato, orange, prune, cinnamon, all wow. the things from like simis, but in like carrot cake form. That's like... I think one of my favorites. And then the last one, funny enough, Adina Sussman and I, because we- Ding, ding, ding. ding, She's been on the show. Another one. We (laughs) get a little counter. Um, So she came over when she was in town last and she brought me her new book and we were going through it. And it was so funny because we both separately developed the same recipe, which I love because it's like one of those like great minds. And I think she is the most incredible person in the world. Um, And we both developed recipes for- date brownies. And funny, it makes sense because my inspiration for that recipe was walking through the shook and I like bit into this fresh date and was so fudgy. I was like, huh, what if I made a brownie that mimicked the fudginess of the date and the date mimics the fudginess of the brownie and then I use Ceylon to sweeten the brownie mix and then I stud each brownie with a medjool date. 
And it's, I mean, I'm very well known. You've you've had my brownie. You've come to the Shabbat with the brownies. Yes, like amazing. I was very famous. And this is the first time I've ever shared a brownie recipe because I've always thought that that was going to be my Tate's cookies. Yeah. Now I'm a little huh. too lazy where it's like, I just don't think I have it in me to build a multi-million dollar <laughs> Your Tate's cookies? Um, no, that, that would be amazing. Jake's brownies. I Jake's love brownies. This. We've talked about it. Oh, that sounds incredible. I wanted to ask you about, honestly, my favorite thing in the book, which is a Moses in a blanket. Yes. What is that? So Tell our listeners. It's our. It's funny because that's what they call it in, in Hebrew in Israel. We just still call them pigs in a blanket, even though we use all beef kosher hot dogs. And that's like not like because we're kosher. It's just because that's those are the, the good hot dogs are the kosher ones. And you see it a million one like ways that you do it. I do a in my in like in my first book I did a knish dough wrapped one because I grew up in Queens and there was this place knishnosh and they would do knish dough wrapped hot dogs. That was my favorite. People do puff pastry. What I started doing is I have this whole section in I could nosh about challah. The idea is is that I think people. I want people to work towards mastering challah. And once they do that, it's not like, okay, great. Now I'm going to move on to sourdough or bagels or this or that. It's like, no, no, no. How do we lean in? You've mastered a yeast of dough. You were so afraid of it and you've got it. What else can you do with it? You can bake two challahs or you could bake one challah and use the other half of the dough to make any of these things. So I have this challah monkey bread, which is insane, insane. No matter how difficult of a dessert I make, Every time I serve monkey bread, it's a better reaction than I've ever had. <laughs> uh, because we're just, we're just, we need to embrace the kid, our inner kids. And Moses in a blanket is, I take the challah dough and I roll it out and I wrap strips of it around hot dogs and I so brush good. it with egg and top it's it with everything, bagel seasoning. And I dip it in mustard because I think people mm-hmm. who put ketchup on hot dogs are sociopaths <laughs> and or children. <laughs> I knew you'd get judgmental at some point. Wow, those fiery takes. Um, no, it sounds amazing. You, you actually brought something here today. I did. I did. This is my favorite part of of talking to people in the food world when they have cookbooks out. They usually bring something. It's um, my, who would show up empty-handed? You do, do you show up anywhere empty-handed? We're talking about all these crazy. foods and I'm getting so it's hungry. Goyish. And you've brought <laughs> food. So tell us what you've brought. Um, so I I brought leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> I brought leftovers. We had we had a, a we had a little uh, some friends over last night and I made these. Um, this is my any fruit poppy streusel coffee cake. So the idea is it's a poppy streusel coffee cake and you can use a pound of any fruit. Because I started, I was like, okay. The first time I did it was like pears and then it was summer. And I was like, huh, I wonder if I could do it with peaches. I did with peaches, it came out amazing. And then in the spring, I did it with strawberries and rhubarb. It came out amazing. I was like, great. This batter can handle anything. I just kind of give a little guide in terms of if you're using these kinds of fruits, it'll take a little less time. If you use these, it'll take a little more time. And it's really good because a lot of the desserts are meant to be enjoyed with a cup of coffee, a little bit of tea, it's perfect. anything you want. You just need a little something sweet to nosh on. I really respect that you've brought this treat for us in a Tupperware, but with a Ziploc inside. Like so you are taking back your Tupperware. So originally it was just in the Ziploc because... I mean, ugh, I, again, everyone just like sh- tries to show their best self online. It's like, oh, I don't use plastic. It's like, no, no, no. I, I, I use the Ziploc. I try to reuse them when I can. And when I can, I'm sorry. But I bike everywhere in the city. So I'm always on a city bike. And the number of times where I like throw a Ziploc in and I'm like, oh, here, I brought you something. And it's just crumbs. So I was like, okay, I needed something that would just like keep the structure. And this way, I get to give, leave you with the Ziploc. Yeah, and you'll and take that. take yeah, home the Tupperware. Otherwise, otherwise what, Jake what Cohen's Tupperware would be all over New York City. This, this was just 
my final name drop of the day. Yes, do my it. My final name drop of the day because I was just, I was cooking. It's a double name drop. <laughs> I was cooking with uh, Isaac Mizrahi, who ooh. is going to be moderating my launch event at the Striker Center on the 12th. And we were talking about this. I have this thing on Fire Island where I got this Tupperware from Katie Couric. That ding 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 ding. Two people we haven't had as guests. So all right, so I Jewish I, Katie Couric. I hang out with Katie Couric, and she gave me a Tupperware, and she was like, "And it's a really good Tupperware." So it became this tradition on Fire Island that oh my god, I have another deep job. It's so bad. It's so bad. This is like so. It all started because I was cooking banana bread with Benny Blanco in my apartment. <laughs> and this was happening right before we were going to Fire Island. And so I literally had the, the cake came out of the oven. I was like, get out of my house. I need to get to the train. And I didn't have any time. So I just flipped the cake into Katie's Tupperware, <laughs> popped on the lid, and left. And oh, I brought it to, to the house, and it became like, our cake for the weekend. And everyone would just like, a very Jewish way, where it's like, oh, I just cut a little cut sliver. Cut a little slice. Cut a little sliver. <laughs> it was like, oh, then another sliver. And actually, you know, it's gone. And then so it became a tradition that every week of our share, I would bake something new, <laughs> stuff the Tupperware. I would be like, oh, what'd you, what what, what Katie cake did you bring today? <laughs> and we'd go through it. I just saw her the other week out east, and I gave her back the Tupperware Unfortunately, so I need to invest in some new vintage that could Tupperware. Be your, along with the brownies, you could it could be like J. Cohen Tupperware. J. Cohen, you know, Jewish Tupperware. Wow, that's really smart. All right, you heard it here first. Yes, I like that. I'm so excited to eat this. Tell us what your Rosh Hashanah plans are, what you're making, what you're doing, who you're having. The funny thing is, is for a lot of these recipes now that I'm like making them all to like post online and do these like little social promotions, I'm making them again for the first time. And like we shot this like over a year ago last spring. So it's kind of like a reminder like, oh, wow. No, no, this is going to be a good book. You're like, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, it takes a lot of work, but I, I get there. My Rosh Hashanah starts with, we do Erev Rosh Hashanah at Central Synagogue and then second night, Saturday, I will be cooking a big meal. Now with challah prints, we'll probably make some gorgeous challah. Then, oh my God, wait, I forgot like the craziest part of this is, so my book comes out September 12th. Erev Rosh Hashanah starts the 15th. So what am I doing the morning of Erev Rosh Hashanah? But this is the first time you're getting like the exclusive um, announcement. Um, I'm doing the most insane launch event at Acme Smoked Fish. They do their Fish Fridays, which is the only day that they open up to the public. So I will be there selling and signing cookbooks. In addition to Papa Bagels, we'll be there Mm, baking fresh, exclusive for my book launch, challah egg bagels. The first time they've ever done this. This is Um, amazing. This is breaking news. Breaking news. So this is the morning of Erev. So it's like, you haven't gotten the craziness yet. You can go, you can pick up your bagels and locks for the weekend. And you'll be sat. It's perfect. Are you a break fast guy? Do you host a giant? Break I host. Fast? I host everything. Everything. I and is there a lot of pressure? I get, I get that sense. <laughs> Everyone. It's like it's. And if I don't host, then I just have to deal with with uh, uh, like like these people aren't very good cooks. Like they. I will. Are your I'm friends not saying, afraid to feed you? Is the bar set so high that? You know, I wish they weren't. We, my husband and I talk about this all the time, that it's like so rare that we get invited to someone's I house bet. as a guest. And it's like all I want, all I want. I, one of our Fire Island weeks, one of the guys in the house is like, his, he had like a background as a private chef and he like kind of took charge one night and like cooked dinner and like didn't let me do anything. And nice. he was, I mean, he was also like shirtless and gorgeous, but it was, just, <laughs> like, it was like so hot to be taken care of and like cooked for in a way that I've, I don't often get it. 
to That's experience. Amazing. Everyone like asks like, oh, does your husband cook for you sometimes? Like we met as children, as children. Ah. Like we met the day after my 21st birthday was our first date. Oh. So he never had to learn how to cook and never will. <laughs> I, it was within Not this past issue. within this past year, there was a text message of like, hey, can you preheat the oven for me at 350? And he was like, how do I do Can that? Can you talk me through it? Uh, literally, literally. He was like, what? he was like sending me pictures. Is it this button? But there's also some magic in that too. Beautiful. Jake Cohen, the new book is I Could Nosh, classic Jewish recipes revamped for every day. It is so good to see you. Happy Rosh Hashanah, happy new year, and happy new book. Thank you. are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. So look, you don't know this by listening to me, but if you've seen me, you know that I am what you would call a Jew of noble proportions, which means a Jew that feasts on Rugelach. I have eaten this great cookie of our people far and wide, and, and I'm going to go out and make a statement here that Lili's Rugelach are probably the best for Brengen Rugelachs that I have maybe ever eaten. They are made in Harlem and not by the sort of person you would expect our producer, Quinn Waller, went to investigate who makes these amazing cookies and what makes them so freaking good. And here is her report. A little while ago, I brought some Rigelach into the office. Wait, what's happening? What are we doing here? What is this? If you're not familiar, brigalach are small, flaky pastries with some sort of filling. Traditionally, they're little crescents made by rolling a triangle of butter-based dough around chocolate, fruit, nuts, or other fillings that you might expect in a Jewish pastry. They can be traced back nearly 400 years to Jewish communities in Poland. But I'm in New York City in 2023, and I had heard that the Rigelach on the table in front of us were the best in town. I wanted to take the matter to the court of public opinion, or rather, the highly opinionated unorthodox team. I am, I am going oh, to Oh, these try. are really good. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Well, nutty. Few things give me more pleasure than chewing into a microphone. Walnut. Yeah. Even the existence. The raisin. Of, of oh, yeah, the raisin. despicable raisins. Oh, yeah. uh, a food stuff that really ruins everything and anything it touches cannot spoil the genius of this. That's good. Uh, What's like the thing that feels like cinnamon? It tastes like cinnamon? It is cinnamon. Cinnamon. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was right. <laughs> when I told everybody where the Rigolach were from, they were surprised. Because the Rigolach weren't from a bakery on the Upper West Side. They weren't from Zabar's or Russ and Daughters or Bread's or one of the many other well-known Jewish bakeries in New York City. They were from Lily's Baked Goods, a bakery on 118th Street and Frederick Douglass Boulevard, right smack in the middle of South Harlem. When I think of Harlem, I don't usually think of Rigolach. It's a neighborhood that's historically Black, although the racial landscape has changed. Lily's has a small storefront on a side street, across from a large luxury high-rise. Inside, there are posters of famous Black historical figures, little kitschy signs that say things like, love, giving them the last piece of cake no matter how much you want it, and bake the world a better place. Jazz plays softly from a small boombox, and there are two display cases full of goodies. Uh, my name is Alvin Smalls. I'm at Lily Baker Shop, New York, Manhattan. Alvin Lee Smalls, known as Mr. Lee, is the owner of Lily's Baked Goods. He's in his 80s, and he's a quiet guy. You get the sense that he's happier baking than he is talking about baking. Mr. Lee is Black, and he's not Jewish, but he's been baking regular for more than 50 years. Mr. Lee grew up in South Carolina and came to New York in 1962. He got a job in the kitchen of New York Presbyterian Hospital, but he didn't always work with pastries. In fact, he started out peeling onions, but ended up working there for 30 years. About a decade in, he became the head pastry chef. And one day, he came across a recipe for Rigolach. A newspaper. And before you saw this recipe in a newspaper, you had never heard, never heard of it, never eaten it. No, um, never. <laughs> it was just a recipe out of the newspaper. Did you know that it was a Jewish no. food before you started no. eating it? No. Around the holidays, New York Presbyterian told him that they'd like to serve Rigolach in the cafeteria. He remembered this recipe that he had saved, but he didn't love the recipe the first time he made it. It didn't come under at all. But Mr. Lee had some tricks up his sleeve from other things that they baked at the hospital. And, you know, like we cooked the raisin and honey, cinnamon bun and different pastries, and I decided to do it for that. After about a month of tinkering, he landed on an iteration of the recipe that he really liked and stuck with it. Though he wouldn't tell me exactly what the recipe is, a real magician never reveals his secrets after all. It involves real good butter, raisins cooked in honey, and all Trump's flour, which Mr. Lee thinks is the best flour you can buy. Eventually, Mr. Lee started his own bakery and brought the recipe with him. Today, at 81 years old, Mr. Lee is still making regalach. Okay, so right now everything tastes exactly the same way. Everything. Last year, 
Lily's Baked Goods established a national Rigoloth Day on April 29th. That coincided with Mr. Lee's 80th birthday. They wanted to celebrate the pastry and bring it to people who hadn't heard of it before. Here's his wife, Mrs. Lee, who works at the bakery doing basically everything that's not the actual baking. He introduced a brand new, very special taste to people who otherwise would have never, ever tasted it. They can't find it anywhere else. They don't even know how to say it sometimes. They come up with all kinds of little names for it, but they know it comes out of his hands. How many people do you know that have done something like that? With ethnicities, the tropes that follow us are ridiculous. And we discard them. We don't want them. I bet you somewhere there's a Korean woman making phenomenal rugula. I bet you somewhere there's an Inuit man making fantastic fried chicken. And I, I want to have it. I really do. And for their community, they might be introducing that to that community. And that is to be celebrated. And I think that anyone that can introduce a flavor of food that is so valuable, it needs to be celebrated. And it's for everyone. While I was talking to Mr. and Mrs. Lee, we were interrupted by a customer. This customer had a decades-old connection to Mr. Lee. I used to wash the dishes in your first bakery. You remember I used to wash them dishes and all you had to do was give me rugula? I wouldn't take your money? <laughs> I was like, you know what? I wash your dishes every night. You don't have to pay me. Just put some in a bag. <laughs> I hear that. And I'll be happy. I've been hooked ever since. You can't make this up. She had washed dishes for Mr. Lee 30 years ago at his first bakery, and had since lost touch. But she hadn't stopped hunting for his rugelach. Because I've been buying rugelach all over town, and I have not been satisfied. Okay, so even when you retire, you've got to take my phone number, and you've got to make me rugelach for the rest of my life. <laughs> because you got me hooked on it. I had never had it before. Apparently, customers like this aren't unusual. A lot of stories I hear like that. Yeah. I just do my job. Mm-hmm. 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 The Virgilach gets a lot of hype. There are customers like this that come in asking for it. There are reporters like me that come in asking about it. And Mr. Lee's Virgilach was even on Oprah's annual favorite things list in 2018. But the Virgilach isn't the only thing at the bakery. There's carrot cake and cookies and bread pudding and cheesecake. I particularly recommend the pineapple upside down cake. Do you like making rugula anymore? I know you get all the hype because of it, but are you tired of it? Maybe, I don't know, I'm tired if I have to do it. I'll do it. But when I asked Mr. Lee about his favorite thing to make, he didn't have to hesitate. Danish. One Danish got touched five times. So first you roll it out, put it in the pan, and it's not rising up, press it down, two, and after you press it down, you wash it with egg wash. And after egg wash, you put your food on it. And after the fruit finish, when you come into the oven, you gotta glaze it. After you glaze it, you have to um, put the icing on it. And you touch the same thing five times in Danish. I still like doing that. 
He really, really loves Danish. Here's Mrs. Lee. When he first met me and we started dating, he said, oh my God, you feel like Danish. <laughs> she rubbed my arm to demonstrate how Mr. Lee thought her skin was soft, like Danish dough. And I love when he makes Danish, when he would come home after making Danish, you know, beaming. So if you're in the neighborhood, sure. Come to Lili's for some great regalach, but stay for some Danish too. back, I told a story about eating at Plant Burger, a new restaurant chain near our office, and noticing two Sikhs sitting next to me enjoying their meatless burgers. I pulled out my phone and texted Maggie Phillips, a tablet reporter who covers all the religions that aren't Judaism. I think this might be the future of religious coexistence, I texted her and then said on the show. And imagine my surprise to hear from one of the founders of Plant Burger inviting us back to learn more. So what you're about to hear is Maggie Phillips eating a plant burger and sitting down with Seth Goldman and Julie Farkas, who co-founded the restaurant chain with Spike Mendelson. Have a taste. Julie and Seth, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you, it's great to be with you. Really excited, I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm especially excited to be here. Could you please walk me through the timeline of this whole project. Um, Go back to... Yeah. From Jonas, really starting with Jonas yes, Bar Mitzvah. Exactly. Let's, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll start with, yeah, Jonas Bar Mitzvah. So our son Jonah, he's our oldest child. We have three sons. When he was 10, he loved meat, but he said if we could be healthy without eating animals, why wouldn't we make that choice? We didn't have a really good answer for that one at the time. And so we were mostly vegetarians for a few years. And he, had, he then converted his younger brothers to vegetarianism very, very quickly. And his bar mitzvah Torah portion was Parsha Re'eh in Deuteronomy. And one of the things it covers are the laws of kashrut, keeping kosher. So his portion, one of the things it talked about is, you know, taking, spilling the blood out to not, because the blood is the life, and to not have the blood of the meat with the milk. Because you have to separate life and death. You shouldn't have those together in the same meal. And then he took it back and he said, you know, this is in Deuteronomy, which is at the end of the Torah. And he said, but at the beginning of Torah, God says to man, I'm giving you everything that grows out of the ground to eat and you'll have dominion over the animals. But there's nothing about eating animals in Genesis. The laws of Kashrut only come out later when he said it's clear that people are going to eat meat. So if you eat meat, here's the ethical way to eat meat. But he said, if we want to go back to the source, Genesis, we wouldn't eat meat at all. And so that's when we became vegetarians. That's a really impressive exegesis for a 13-year-old. <laughs> and part of it was, you know, a 13-year-old, like any good 13-year-old has some angst. And so, you know, there was some, you know, I think he felt, how come the world doesn't see things the way I do? And so us as parents wanting to support someone who saw the world differently decided to do this. So I would say at least 70% of our decision to go vegetarian was to support our son. But that was at the beginning. And then, of course, over time, we continued to be on that journey with not just him, but, you know, our whole family, his two brothers. And I think we continued to feel better about the ethical decision to not eat meat. I would say we occasionally had disappointments from a culinary perspective. You know, the boys would go to a barbecue or a cookout and 
oh, we can only eat the veggie burgers and they you know, dry up or fall you know, through the grill. So, so there was always that longing for just something that tasted a little better. And then it was actually in 2012, on my 50th birthday, I wrote a Washington Post business section article all about Beyond Meat and the vision that this company had to create burgers out of plants that would really replicate burgers from animals. And I said to Seth, who'd been with Honest Tea for many, many years, had founded Honest Tea, and the company had grown and scaled. And I thought that he had the time to use his expertise in scaling a business and could use it at Beyond Meat. And so I said, my birthday present would be having a delicious veggie burger, but not like the ones we already eat. And if you can help Beyond Meat achieve that goal, that would be a wonderful birthday present for me, which he delivered on. At the same time, though, that's such an impressive sacrifice for your son that you were willing to make. You love burgers so much that you were willing to push your husband into a totally new line of work. Oh, no, but, uh, you know, so... I think what we've learned, and we say this to to Jonah and all of our sons, that, you know, initially what we felt like was a sacrifice was a gift. That Mm. that being able to live a life and and be in a world where you can feel like what you care about and the actions you take are totally in line just feels just like a blessing. You know, this thinking around social justice and trying to do tzedek with the planet as well, not just with people, is also, I think, something that informs how we live. Right. I was wondering, I believe it says on your website that the food is 100% kosher and halal. Could you please tell me a little bit about, A, why that was important to you to have both, and then B, in practical terms, how you went about that? You know, so going back to Honest Tea, which was OU certified, we always want these products to be available to as many people as possible. So, So part of that you could say is marketing, but we also want the ethos underlying those values to be embedded in the product too. And so, of course, with plant-based, when it's entirely plant-based, it's much easier. You don't have to worry about draining the blood from the (laughs) ingredients. You don't have to worry about mixing milk and meat. So, yes, there is a kosher process, but it, once you make the commitment to be vegan on the, on the menu, it, it's, it's much easier. Do you have people coming up to you and saying, oh, it's so nice to have a, I'm religious, it's nice to have a cheeseburger, or like, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. Catholic, we can have hamburgers on Fridays now. Do you have people coming up saying things like that to you? Uh, we're, we're members at two different synagogues, and one of them has a Shabbat dinner after services, and they had plant burger cater one time, and like the rabbis were so excited to have cheeseburgers <laughs> for the first time in their lives. And so we're excited to be able to offer that for people. And yeah, and it's all plant-based, so it's okay. I am really curious about how you get that consistency. I had a plant burger right before you came in. As you can see, I finished the whole thing. So how do you how do you get that? Yeah, so it, that really is uh, something that Beyond Meat has been working on for a long time. And Going back to that article Julie read about Beyond Meat in 2012, it's the founder there had this vision that if we want to replicate meat, you know, something that comes from an animal, we can't just put together a bunch of vegetables and mush them together in the form of a disc and say that's yes. supposed to substitute for what comes from an animal. So they did a much deeper dive. They do an MRI of a burger and they look at the way the fats and the proteins are assembled. Because everything that comes together to, to deliver a hamburger, a beef patty, comes from the earth. It just goes through the cow. The cow is in effect a bioprocessor. And so the first thing is, okay, well, let's understand what those components are. So obviously it's amino acids that form the proteins, it's lipids that form the fats, it's some trace minerals and carbohydrates, and all of those come from plants. And so then 
physically understanding what are the properties and the nutritional profile that give it the taste, give it the texture, and then replicating that. And, and it took years of research to do, but certainly this is more advanced than anything that, that's been out there. When you get into cultured meat, then you get into some really interesting issues, right? So if you're using the cells of a pig, but replicating them, there's some who say that could be kosher. I mean, me personally, I wouldn't be eating that from a Jewish perspective. I just, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in that kind of workaround. Yeah. Versus a plant-based product replicating the sensory experience of a pig, um, that I'm okay with that. It's, uh, it's really uncanny. And <laughs> when I tell people that I'm writing this story about imitation meat, a lot of time they think I mean lab-grown meat. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. no, 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 that's mm. something, it's a yep, whole different. It's very different. Not literal can of worms, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a whole different thing. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that's just critical as we look at what's happening in the planet, you know, hottest summer on record, we look at the water issues our planet is going through, and... So much of it is driven by our agricultural footprint. Our, our, we, the, we have a company called Eat the Change, and it's all about shifting people towards more planet-friendly diets because the single biggest act we do every day to the environment is what we eat. Mm. You know, I mean, it's great if you can buy a, a car that has less, you know, lower emissions or if you can vote for people, but you only get to do those things every, every few years. But every day you eat, and every day you have the choice with what you eat to make a decision that is more in line with what you hope for the <laughs> for the planet. And so so meat or what's the center of the plate is a key driver of that. And so our point of view is let's give people those options and let's make them as delicious as we can and fun too. I mean this you're in the plant burger restaurant here. Yes. And there's a fun artwork on the wall. There's music playing. There's a vibe. People yes. greet you when you come in. And like, let's just make this accessible yes. and inviting. From a macro perspective, our food system is so out of balance and such having such a negative impact that I'm in favor of all solutions to try to fix it. I've, uh, we obviously personally believe in a plant-based approach. Right, uh, but yeah. But it's going to take a lot of different approaches to, to, to get things to a better place. Could you tell me a little bit about this gift a meal thing? All of the tables here have yeah. these stickers on them that say yeah. gift a meal, heal hunger in 15 seconds. Could you explain so that So it's me? really part of the whole approach of Plant Burger. You know, obviously we're trying to build a business. It needs to be financially successful to, to stay in existence, but we also, you know, always want to remind people when they are eating, they're making choices. And so that eat the change certainly takes a form and from an environmental perspective, but also if we can help expand access. And in this case, these gifted meals are plant-based meals okay. that we're making available to communities that often don't always have access to them. That's a really neat way to just help uh, people take that action. Well, gosh, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time this afternoon. This has been really fun. Glad you enjoyed the burger. Thanks very much. And again, sure. thanks for the milkshake. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate absolutely. it. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. For more of Maggie Phillips' work, check out tabletmag.com slash Maggie. Hey, Joshua here, talking about Mazone again. In the U.S., SNAP, that's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as Food Stamps, provides essential, life-saving support for millions of Americans, but it is still woefully inadequate. Everyone deserves to eat freely, without stress or shame, and that's why Mazone works to protect and strengthen SNAP. During the High Holy Days, all donations will be doubled, up to $100,000. Visit mazone.org slash unorthodox to help us strengthen our country's food safety net and expand critical support to those in need.
So J.Crew, this week, we are bringing you another installment of our series Across the USA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Every month, we travel to a different Jewish community. And this week, producer Josh Cross takes us along to get a taste, and we do mean a taste, a big bite, a schmear-sized installment of the thriving Orthodox community in the Catskills. If you thought nobody puts baby in the corner, have a listen to what Josh found out as he went up to the mountains to see what the Jews were doing and eating up there. Have a listen. On this episode of Across the USA, I'm going to be looking at a long-standing Jewish tradition. Tradition! Nah, not that one. This one. Yup, like canned heat sung there in their rural hippie anthem, we're going up the country. But we're not going to Woodstock exactly. This time, we're following New York State Route 52, the kind of road you don't take unless you know where you're going. On this particular Wednesday, I was headed to the Catskills. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a deli there, looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland. Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey, but is a man a shepherd down in Louisville, Kentucky, North, South Carolina, looking for lots in a country diner. I can say we're on our way all across the USA. Yeah, you've heard of the Catskills. You've watched Dirty Dancing, and you've laughed at Sid Caesar, Jackie Mason, and Jerry Seinfeld's jokes. You've probably even seen when the marvelous Mrs. Maisel visited the Borscht Belt. Here we are in the Catskills, and I'm starving. Where can you get a decent meal around here? But that's not the Catskills I'm interested in. I'm going to explore the Jewiest pocket of the Jewiest corner of the Jewiest summer destination in the entire universe. I had driven into the Jewish Alps and was headed to Woodburn, New York. In the mid-1800s, the Catskills became the vacation destination for the New York area for Gentiles and Jews alike. By the early 1900s, some of the Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe had moved up to become full-time farmers. And as urban Jews got wealthier and had time for things like vacation, they were looking for a spot where they could escape the city and anti-Semitism. The farmers opened boarding houses for city Jews, which eventually morphed into the hotels and bungalow colonies emblematic of the golden age of the Borscht Belt. Today, the traffic from the Gentiles and most of the Jews has diminished, mostly because of the increased availability of air travel and other options. The people vacationing in the heart of the Catskills now are mostly Orthodox Jews, which I am most definitely not. So I needed a guide. I called up Hani Apfelbaum, an Orthodox friend of the pod. She is spending the summer there, like she does every year. If she sounds familiar, she was recently on the show to talk about her new cookbook, Totally Kosher. We met at a cafe, because the quickest way to understand a community is to go where people eat together. 
My name is Connie Applebaum. I am a food writer and photographer. We're here in Woodburn, the uh, Times Square of upstate New York, of the Catskills. We're right across from Dougie's, which is old school institution here in Woodburn, but we're sitting in Cafe Chocolat having a mega waffle. Once you, you start opening all the restaurants and going in that direction, we have to have our sushi and all our over-the-top foods. And this is an over-the-top waffle with every topping you could think of. Indeed. So, yeah. Should we try it? We should. All right. It's like melting, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Looking around the cafe, you could see Orthodox Jews of all stripes, from camp kids in sports jerseys and sitsis to women in an array of modest dress, and of course, a lot of men in black. I, th- I, think, I think the Orthodox community has just a very strong sense of community. And really what this whole concept of Bangkani life is, is communal different communities that are coming together and really when you find bungalow colonies they're all like within specific sects like the Sfar bungalow colony or the the Baba bungalow colony or the Chabad bungalow colony right it's really communities that come together and people have their summer friends a lot of times it's people that they know in the city as well and people that have just similar values similar systems of living and everyone could just kind of be themselves and in their own comfort zone because they're all, you know, living a similar lifestyle. The traditional image of bungalow colonies, run-down shacks, dirt roads, no amenities, isn't really true anymore. Now, the communities are more like little developments, built around a shul, playgrounds, and even mikvahs. But that old image isn't from that long ago, and there haven't always been towns like this, full of restaurants catering to kosher patrons. We had, like, all the trucks that used to come, because obviously, like, now we have, you know, all these areas with different markets and stores, but it was only, like, whatever trucks came to the colony. So you had, like, you know, the grocery truck and the bakery truck um, and the knish truck, and there was a phone booth. You had to, like, reserve your time to use the phone and one place to go wash your clothes. And really, like, our bungalow, was, was, it was a shack. Paper-thin walls and... We rarely had hot water. I remember taking a lot of cold showers. But I like to say they were like the warmest showers of my life because it was just such a beautiful time to just like be young and free and explore. And I knew that when I had kids, I had to give them that experience. It's important for me for my kids to just be in nature and grass and trees. You know, a big part of it is just like always being with friends. Like I come down in the morning and there's like literally 10 kids at my breakfast table. Our place is right off the playground. So there's always just so many kids in and out. And it's just like the kids are just deliriously happy. And it's, it's so simple. During the year, yeah, I live in Brooklyn. Yes, we can always like plan play dates and go out. But like here, no, go outside. Go ride your bike, go on your rollerblades, go swimming, go to your friend's house, you know. Jewish life is just so much centered around family and community, like I said earlier. So that's the part that feels Jewish to me. Um, you know, and obviously when you have a bungalow colony, there's always the shul, which is the center. You know, we don't just, they don't just build homes. They always have the shul. That's the center of the colony. So if the shul, or synagogue, is the center of the community, we had to go see the Woodburn Shul, just up the road, past Bubby's Clothing Store, Gombo's Heimisha Bakery, and Hakolba Safer Judaica. There's even an old boarded-up Art Deco movie theater that appears to be in the beginning stages of repair. On my way up to the shul, 
I bumped into some Orthodox radio royalty. Nachum Siegel in Woodburn, New York, on a typical Wednesday. Nachum Siegel has hosted the program Jewish Moments in the Morning since September 1983. He's a big deal in the Orthodox radio world. Seriously, before we could even talk to him, there were boys asking him to sign their hats and jerseys and anything else they had. We asked him why so many Orthodox families still make their way up to the Catskills. Really for the same reason that everyone did it in the past. They have an opportunity to get away from the city, to spend time in a makeshift bungalow that supposedly is less expensive than renting a, a real home, although these days I hear even the bungalow prices are pretty crazy. And uh, they come up here and uh, they enjoy the good weather and the, uh, the space and the freedom and the activities. Uh, really the same reason that everyone did it back then. The thing that people are missing if they don't uh, go through this experience, frankly, is a unique aspect of community. It's an unusual, different, out of the ordinary experience. Large families of different backgrounds, even though to the outside it doesn't always look like they're different backgrounds, coming together, spending, you know, round the clock time with each other, which is unusual, of course, in the city or during the year, and uh, having this, uh, you know, enhanced community experience. That's really what it is. This mixing of flavors was something that stood out for Hani as well. You don't find that a lot, because I do think that people tend to stick to their, you know, their... Their shul. Their shul, their, you know, their sect within orthodoxy, you know? Right. Which I think that, like, mixing would be nice. I, I think it's actually, that's something that, like, has always bothered me about the outside view of the orthodox world, is that everybody just lumps us together and, like, oh, you're orthodox. But, like... It is just so nuanced. We finally approached the front of Congregation B'nai Israel Woodburn. You know how I said how people stick together uh, to their own kind of communities? Right. This shul is the opposite of that. Everyone comes here from everywhere. You're just going to see every mix. Interesting. Because they're always open and they have late minyanim and it's like, if you need a daven, you will find a minion here. Outside, I struck up a conversation with a guy in a ball cap, camo t-shirt, and sitsis. This was Ephraim Braun from Montreal, who's been coming to the shul and the Catskills since he was an infant. He and Hani had similar thoughts about what makes this shul so special. Everything you said is the reason why I come to this shul. Um, I don't know if he still has it, but he used to have a big sign hanging from right here all the way up to here. It said, um, I'll say in Yiddish and I'll translate. It says, So what that means is uh, enough with the, um, I guess you'd say, wars, right, with uh, all Jews, meaning we're all one people, instead of all these like Hasidim, you know, Ashkenaz and all that. That's why I like about this. So you can just come in, whatever you're looking like, a tank top, tzitzis, whatever, it doesn't matter, and you just pray to God, and that's all. I've been going there my entire life since I'm two months old, literally. It's just like, like it's an old rundown shack, but I just like it better. I can't explain it. It's just like grass, you know, no city, no, I don't know. You, you just got to be there, you know, and <laughs> you can't really explain that stuff. Yeah, so we all come together when it comes to God. When we got to the front door, Ephraim went off to go daven, while Hani and I waited outside for the rabbi's son, who was going to give us a tour. A few minutes later, Ephraim actually came back out and asked if I would wrap tefillin with him, something I just don't do. As we talked, a crowd of Orthodox men and boys surrounded us, listening intently to what essentially became a chavruta, a spirited scholarly debate. Um, Can I get a vote with these guys? What do they think? They're all going to go agree with you. It doesn't I'm matter. Getting, with, like, with that they're all in shul. You're in the shul. What's the question? This last voice was a Chabad rabbi from Goshen, New York, Meyer Borenstein. 
Ephraim had brought in the big guns. So I, I uh, invite every person, whether you believe or don't believe, to put on tefillin. Are you Jewish? Yeah. Let's put on tefillin. Here, my friend. Not going to happen. You, I make you a deal. That's the one thing that I'll I will make not you, I'll make you. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. <laughs> yes. As you will find a lot of reformed Jews out there. No such thing. A Jew is a Jew. A Jew, well, thank a Jew you. is a Jew. Listen. I, hold on, I got a question for you. When Moses gave the Torah at Mount Sinai, when God gave the Torah right. to Moses at Mount Sinai, do you think he said, all Orthodox this side, all black hatters to the all reform, no such thing. It's right. all together. I trust you, I trust you, take care. <laughs> That's what this place is all about. A Jew is a Jew. I may have started the day feeling separate or apart, but to Woodburn's Jews, those feelings are nonsense. This is Sinai off State Route 52. Our Havruta could have continued for hours, but Hani and I were saved by the Bocher. The rabbi's son had shown up to give us a tour. My name is uh, Yitzchak Youngreis. Yitzchak and his father Mordechai Youngreis, also known as the Nicholsburg Rebbe, are actually related to Esther Youngreis, who some have called the Jewish Billy Graham. They are all part of a pretty notable Jewish dynasty. Yitzhak invited us upstairs. We reached a smaller sanctuary that Yitzhak called the Old Shul. It was not much bigger than one of my high school classrooms, with a small arc up front, four rows of pews, and then a small empty section in the back that looked like it was for women to daven. So this is the original song. Yeah, it's 104 years old. What year is it? 1922. 1922. 1922. And uh, the shul downstairs used to be the kitchen or the bingo room, uh, how they called it. Oh, the bingo room? <laughs> downstairs was much bigger. And because of the stairs, they had moved most of the indoor praying to the ground floor. That said, it seemed like every square inch of the property, both inside and out, was filled with Orthodox men praying. So made easier downstairs. So people don't really daven up here? Sure, they're davening all the time. Oh yeah, they come up here? All the time, they just finished the minion. All day, from the morning till the morning. Till the morning, like 22, 23 hours a day. There's learning, there's that's making sure my father always made sure, the first thing when he opened up, he made sure that everything is, that's how I remember him as, uh, since I'm in the Pampers, that everything is giving. Giving, that's what the shul is all about. When he opened up the door, my father put up a big sign on the menorah outside, everyone is welcome, all is welcome. And that's the beauty of the, the, the shul is colorful. Everyone is welcome. What happened to small, tiny shul? It must be something with, uh, they say, something with a big heart. <laughs> big heart, and the estimate, the estimate about five, 6,000 people a day, estimate. About five, 6,000 people yeah. a day, a is day, it? a day. That sounded like a big number, but as we walked around downstairs and out back, I was convinced. On this random weekday morning, there were maybe a hundred people davening inside downstairs, some right outside a kitchen with a big sign proclaiming hot cholent and kugel. And then outside, there were several hundred more men praying on wooden decks that led farther and farther from the building. There were maybe 400 men there at the time. These were Orthodox Jews of all kinds in everything from tank tops to full Hasidish outfits, as Ephraim had told us. We had finished our visit to the old shul, but Hani and I were going to head out to lunch. And we wanted a taste of the new school. And there's nothing much newer in the Orthodox Catskills than sushi. Hani and I headed out of Woodburn up Route 52. 
We were headed to the town of Loch Sheldrake and a compound of restaurants on the lake known as Loch Sheldrake. We had arrived at Sushi Tokyo, which shares the space with the Green Lips Juice Bar and a boat rental spot for enjoying the lake. We sat down with the couple that owns all three businesses over a delicious carrot juice. So, Chaim. And I'm Rivka. Lipschitz. We are from, well, originally we lived in Brooklyn, then New Jersey. Um, recently, we've been living here upstate for the purpose of redeveloping the area and enhancing it and adding a lot of different things here. We have two restaurants, a juice bar and a boat rentals. What we really wanted to do with this place is bring a good experience for Jewish people with a nice view, good food, fresh food, healthy food. And when I saw the place, I figured, you know what, you could a good restaurant with these views would be a great addition to it. So that's how the restaurant addition here started, the vision. And from there, it was just like a rolling snowball. And we keep adding more and more things every year. And I think that now we are, we became a staple in the Catskills for a kosher destination. And then uh, family activities like, you know, boating, we have, you know, zip line, we have an event a tent for camps and for families. This all sounds like a fun vacation spot, but what makes a place like this a place people want to call home? I think it's just such a beautiful place to come to. First of all, property is cheap. For example, a Breslov community is starting, it's like all year round now. There are 120 families and they were able to buy a nice piece of land, build homes that were cheaper than back in the city. 130 families in the Breslov community and then you have the Fallsbergs community. How's everything? Good to see you. So, you know, it's, people are, are able to build here. They're able to open up their own kosher grocery stores, restaurants. There's so much property to build here. Yeah, year-round now. There's year-round communities. When I stayed here this year, all the communities are starting to build up now. I think this is the nicest weather in the summer from anywhere because the city is too hot. Florida is like excruciating heat and like 100% humidity, way too hot. I don't know how anyone lives in this Florida in the summer. I think having like, uh, you know, there's that element of like beach, uh, why people choose like to go south or whatever. I like the lake life better than beach life. It's just more peaceful, more relaxing to me. Um, and clean, clean lakes like this one. This one's very, it's a clean water, clean water lake, no gasoline allowed. Yeah, and that's why people swim here. The water feels incredible, very refreshing. And like, I think it's more refreshing than to be here than to be in, in the ocean, in my opinion. So far, we've been talking to Orthodox Jews exclusively, and it might seem to outsiders that they might not fit in. That's not quite right, according to Chaim. Um, I think they feel like it's very old school, just like, you know, like ultra, ultra Orthodox and only that. And I think there's a mixture of everything. We have a big number of non-Jewish customers, not religious customers, modern Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox. I think it's a mixture of everything, and I just think it's a nice place to live in the summer overall. But I think that long-term, it's expanding like never before, and there's going to be many different communities up here. Chaim is on to something, and the model set out in these communities might be the right recipe for other Jews to follow in the post-COVID world. I wanted to find out more about building communities like the Orthodox had. So I talked to Edward Finkel from the Jewish Federations of North America because he's an expert. I'm Edward Finkel. I'm the managing director for the Jewish Federations of North America 
network of independent communities, consortium of 300 small Jewish communities. The small Jewish communities have been nimble and, and resilient. Everybody knows your name. They are all in this together. Even during the COVID time, they were able to uh, stay connected. The Orthodox community has kept themselves together because they have stayed true to their traditions and their definition of community. And they have been driven by the values of Torah. We care for those who are less fortunate. Everybody needs to eat and be satisfied. You need to thank God for every blessing that's in your life. When you meet a new person, that's an added blessing. It was a strong fabric that sustained those Jewish communities and continues to sustain those Jewish communities. Smaller communities are much more intimate and they're much more people-focused than institutional-focused. Our tradition has been that a community is defined, at least religiously, by 10 people. The minion that is the engine for Jewish community life. And when one steps away, you really don't have a complete community. So you need to do this on a retail basis where you need to touch people, invite people, people that you don't know and invite them in the door because that's the resilient fabric of community. Valuable small Jewish communities like that, they're structured on Jewish community as it is. Take everybody where they are. I think that's the special sauce in small Jewish community life that they accept everybody where they are and that there's value in each and every person. There is something Jewish in each of you that you bring to the table. And that table is a very vibrant table because of those ingredients that you bring together. And that Jewish stew is really what makes Jewish community life really become exciting. So like any stew, you can't make a good stew if you don't have all the ingredients. So I think the recipe hit on by the people sitting around me in the restaurant might be a winner. As I looked around the space, with maybe 100 customers dining on the deck overlooking the lake at 2 p.m. in the middle of a week, no less. I really got a glimpse of all the different communities here. Young families with babies that looked like they had been plucked off of Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. Older couples that seemed to have just come from shul. And even a table full of 15 women who had biked there for their friend's birthday. They were dressed head to toe in bike racing gear, with the addition, of course, of long skirts over their biking pants. Chaim and Rivka left us and sent us a wide array of really good sushi. Hani and I sat and talked a bit, and as I looked around, the crowd started to feel more natural. I felt like less of an outsider sitting outside on the deck among the Jews eating sushi at a kosher restaurant. We may not agree on a lot of things, whether it's practice or social customs, but ultimately, a Jew is a Jew indeed. Before I left Hani, we had one more stop to make in Hani's own colony. Nestled among the relatively modern duplexes is what may be the hottest ice cream shop in all of the Catskills. I was lucky enough to meet the owner. Hi, my name is Joni Schaffer and I'm 12. I'm making ice cream on slush. So you have your own ice cream store out of your basement window? Yes. I started from snow cones, then to slush, then to ice cream and slush. Me and my brothers were going to work in an ice cream truck, and then the guy backed out, so then we just keep doing it. Friday and Sundays are the busiest days for sure. So probably like around 150. You so say you're raking it in. You getting a PlayStation or something with all that money? I'm going to donate some to High Lifeline, 20% of High Lifeline. High Lifeline is a donation for people who have cancer. What makes your ice cream so special? 
we're mostly like nice to the customer. So yeah, we're nice to the customers and we take time to when we make it. If you had to pick one thing to eat right now, what would you pick? Probably a Coke Sushi. Would you make me one of those? Yeah, would you like? Yes, please. What would your mom want you to tell me about it? She brings napkins. That's right. Mom brings the napkins. <laughs> because she's a mom. Moving to Woodburn might not be in the cards for me. But after today, I get it. This pocket of the USA is a perfect tasting menu of what it means to be Jewish in whatever way that means for you. Es Gesunderheit. If you want to learn more about how Jewish federations support flourishing communities in small towns like those in the Catskills, please reach out to their team at network at jewishfederations.org. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Joshua Molina and Liel Leibovitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rosquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem, and our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us email at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. And on this third week of Elul, we say to you, Shalom, friends. Before you go, a few more words about Mazon, an organization that is very close to my heart. I've been working with them for years. This high holy day season, just as the shofar calls us to action as a community, we are compelled to come together in solidarity and strive for a world where no one goes to bed hungry. As we partake of the foods that are meaningful for this season, we must commit to ensuring that everyone in our greater community can access and afford the food they need to feed themselves and their families. And as we willingly choose to fast on Yom Kippur, shouldn't we be thinking about those who are going hungry involuntarily? Please, please make a gift to Mazon to fight hunger during the high holy days, and your donation will be doubled, up to $100,000. Visit mazon.org slash unorthodox today to make your gift and send a Shana Tova tribute card to your loved ones by mail or email. <laughs>